0: Having found the atomic bomb, we have used it. We have used it against those who attack us without warning at Pearl Harbor. Against those who have starved and beaten and executed American prisoners of war. Against those who have abandoned all pretense of obeying international laws of warfare. We have used it in order to shorten the agony of war in order to save the lives of thousands and thousands of young Americans. You know, I've spent my career taking on some of the cultural baddies, you know, some of the most prominent intellectuals in the world, some of them in public debates, some of them behind the scenes. And I've come to realize that ideas define everything that we do. With an academic degree, you're trained to be a researcher and writer, to the point that it's annoying. I mean, but I'm grateful for it. I'm not talking about books I've not read. I'm not talking about papers I've not read. Whether I agree with them or not actually isn't the point. Uh, There are quite a few books that I would read that I would say are actually evil books. Donald Trump, when he was in a divorce with his first wife, she said he has a copy of Mein Kampf next to his bed. I wish more people did. If the German people had bothered to read that book rather than just have it on their shelf, we might have avoided the Holocaust. If more people read the Quran, they'd be wiser to what Islam actually is, what they actually believe. If people bothered to read, as I have, the writings of Klaus Schwab and the various contributors to the World Economic Forum and the ideas that are driving the globalists, I read them because I want to understand their mentality. I cut out the middleman. I go straight to the ideology. Everything in your life is being defined by either your ideas or the ideas of the people around you. And each episode, we're going to be digging into a different idea that appears in the culture. This is Ideas Have Consequences with me, Larry Alex Taunton. I saw the film Oppenheimer, and on today's podcast, we're going to discuss The way that history is rewritten and often weaponized to justify a modern political agenda. This is ideas have consequences, and we discuss big ideas on this podcast and their practical outworking. And is there any greater, you know, idea than those that are, or I should say, ideas that are bequeathed to us by history itself in a proper. Accurate telling of history, or in this case, in a in a bad and inaccurate telling of it. 1984 author George Orwell said that quote: "The most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their own history." That's so very true. History is seized, it's attacked, it's it's weaponized in a cultural war. It's one of the first victims of. A cultural war. But let's start with a present controversy, just by way of, just by way of an example, a present controversy that has been obfuscated by so called fact checkers with dubious political motives. What I'm talking about here is this headline, and I, I could find dozens of these. This is just an example. It says, this is PolitiFact. No, Biden did not admit he had an inappropriate relationship with a minor. Now, aren't you relieved? Aren't you? Aren't you so relieved to discover that Biden didn't admit that he had had an inappropriate relationship with a minor? Now, notice they didn't say that he had had an inappropriate relationship with a minor; just that he didn't admit it. Now, fact checks are almost entirely funded by the left. If you saw a podcast on Bill Gates you will know that we talked in there about how um, Bill Gates had given a lot of money to various media groups in order to get, you know, favorable headlines. And he's not the only one to do it. And again, most of these are funded by the left, and hence the reason they tend to buttress uh, leftist causes, leftist ideas, leftist agendas. Interestingly, they almost always reveal the very truth they are trying to hide. Now, this one is a classic example. It's defending Biden against the charge that he publicly admitted that he is a pedophile. Now, in dismissing this claim, the fact-checkers are suggesting that the perverted octogenarian, and he, he is perverted, is merely the victim of a Russia media plot. And thus, by implication, they're suggesting that the accusation that he is a pedophile, that accusation as a whole, is false. So, what the fact checkers in this case ignore is the primary event upon which this charge is based Ashley Biden's diary entries, in which she expressed her confusion over her father's quote, probably not appropriate end quote, showering with her, saying she was quote, hypersexualized at a young age. There's no mention of it in here. There's no mention whatsoever of it in here. Now, why is that? Why don't they mention it? Well, because it's true. So the fact checkers choose an obvious falsehood as their straw man, demolish it, and lead you to believe that similar claims are likewise absurd. It's a deception. This is what fact checkers do. You need to beware of this tactic. But it's not... Only the present realities that are obscured. The past is often obscured. Indeed, the past is very often rewritten and employed, as we say, as a weapon in a cultural war. Now, take, for example, the issue of slavery. White Americans are now being saddled with an institutional slavery, the guilt of an institutional slavery that was abolished more than 150 years ago, whether their ancestors were slave owners or not, whether their ancestors lived in America or not. The idea is to place the burden upon them for the seizure of power, for the transference of power. It's important to have a Christian worldview. The question becomes, how do we build that? How do we develop that? Oftentimes we have Bible teachers who are very faithful in teaching scripture, but don't ever quite make the connection with the outside world. Other times we have Bible teachers who don't really wanna to touch certain topics because they're just seem to be too toxic. At tomap.com, you are going to find a wide range of issues being addressed to help you build out that Christian worldview. They're on things from from suffering, uh, dealing with mental health, to racial reconciliation. These are all issues that you will find at tomap.com and they'll help you to build out a Christian worldview and to flourish. I hope you learn a lot from the podcast, but you can go beyond the podcast to the courses that we offer at Tome. So I hope you'll take a look at them and sign up. To get access to more than 100 Tome courses, use the code IDEAS. And for $8.25 a month, you can get access to all kinds of courses on a wide variety of subjects, individuals with expertise, with experience in subjects that will be meaningful to you. So use the code IDEAS, and for $8.25 a month, you can get access to all of them. Go to tomap.com. Back to the podcast. And that brings me back to Oppenheimer. I saw the film. Have you seen it? It's worth seeing. It is, uh, it is by and large, a, uh, a good film. It's a typical Christopher Nolan film. Insofar, it is layered. It is intellectual. Uh, it is a film that kind of like Dunkirk, they drop you sort of in the middle of a narrative. It sometimes is a little disjointed. Um, you're not always sure exactly what's going on. That said, it barring a couple of weird scenes... A couple of weird sex scenes um, that are meant to be artsy, I think. Uh, the The film is excellent. Now, I do, however, take issue with the revisionism in the film that the U.S. dropped the bombs unnecessarily on a, quote, defeated enemy. Now, had this been the central point of the film, I would have hated the film. Not just simply disliked it, I would have hated it. But it isn't the central point of the film. The bomb isn't even the culmination of the movie. You know, you'd think that would come at the end of the film. It, it, it's a three-hour film, and I, I looked at my watch, and that comes at about the two-hour mark in the film. So there's a full hour afterwards. The focus is on Oppenheimer, who he was, uh, the difficulties that he faced, and you know, the political machinations, um, you know, the maneuvering that was all going on um, around him still director Christopher Nolan decided to portray America as a bloodthirsty villain hell-bent on revenge now they do throw in a couple of other you know lines about what about the boys who would have had to attack and you saved a lot of america they 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 toss in a few lines like that but but the the overpowering narrative on this particular point is that america had a nifty new toy they wanted to use And they were hell-bent on revenge. They were bloodthirsty. Now, why does Christopher Nolan do this? Well, part of it is simply due to audience ignorance. You can tell them whatever version of history you want, and they won't know any better. When I was teaching Western Civilization in university, oh, 30 years ago, I would begin by giving students an assignment. They were to survey three different demographics. Uh, I think I had 25 and under, uh, between 25 and 50, and then over 50. They were to interview um, a variety of people, but they had to fall into into these these demographics, these categories on a series of controversial uh, historical topics, like who shot JFK, um, what was the cause of the Civil War, one of the questions that I put in there was this. Concerning the dropping of the atomic bombs, I believe, A, the first should have been dropped, but not the second. B, both should have been dropped. C, neither should have been dropped. The US should have invaded Japan with conventional forces. Now, the point of this survey was I was I wanted students to learn on day 1 of my course that history is about more than names, dates, and places. It is about the judicious interpretation of those facts. It's interesting to me that people can look at the same facts and arrive at very different conclusions. And this survey would demonstrate that. As they would sit down with these different age groups, they would come away with different responses to the same facts, or at least the facts they all assumed to know about these events. Now, what was fascinating in this and that I knew was going to happen, and I, I did this for many years, I did this for about a decade, I suppose, this was, again, the mid-90s, and so many veterans of World War II were still very much alive along with their, their siblings, along with their children. And um, so students would bring these surveys into class and they're actually kind of excited about it. They've sort of enjoyed some of their conversations. And then I stand up at front at the chalkboard and I say, okay, you know, Phil, tell me, you know, what did, what did your, what did your um, survey participants say on question number one? And we would work through the questions and then I would start tallying, tallying what the responses were on these different things. But on the bomb, what you discovered was this. The, the under-25 category tended to be very f- moralistic in hand-wringing over it. Oh, I don't think we should have dropped the bombs. They're the most ignorant of the whole bunch. The 25 to 50 crowd, eh, they, were, they were a little more evenly split. Some of them said, oh, yeah, we should have dropped the bombs. Some of them said we shouldn't. But when you got to the 50 and above crowd, they were of view, drop not one, but drop them both. They took that view because they were closer to those events. I mean, part of the way we interpret history, one of the things that determines the way we interpret history is the time in which we live. And those people, the fifty and above,s and the the um, you know mid nineties, the early nineties, were individuals who are closer to those events. They they knew. The stories about Pearl Harbor, about the Bataan Death March, the Rape of Nanking, some of them had been there. That some of these students were interviewing, you know, family members who had fought in World War II. The point is that the further we get from these events, and also the fact that our history has been hijacked. People don't know these things the way they ought to know them. They just they just don't. And so it's easy to have the view that, you know, maybe this is something that shouldn't have been done. Now, take a look at this, this headline. This, this is from 2015. This was done by Pew Research. And it says, Declining support in both the U.S. and Japan for America's bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Nagasaki. Now, what fascinates me about this when you look at this very carefully, 1945, 85% of Americans said they approved of the dropping of the bombs. In 2005, that had dropped from 85% of Americans to 57% of Americans. So that bears out, you know, my survey what we were discovering in the classroom. But you know what really fascinates me when you look at this In 1991, 29% of Japanese said the dropping of the bombs were justified. Fully a third of Japanese thought the dropping of the bombs. The Japanese thought the dropping of the bombs were justified, and that's in 91. I, I don't know what that would have looked like if we'd have gone, you know, say, taken the survey, say, in 1960. I don't know what the answer to that would have been, but... Again, the further you get from the the events, the more ignorant you are, particularly when your teachers have a political agenda or are themselves poorly educated on these subjects and just simply don't pass along the information as they should. But is this what's going on in Christopher Nolan's film? Is Christopher Nolan himself... Ignorant of these facts, and hence the reason it just didn't get into the film. Well, probably not. His research, by the way, his research in um, um, what did I, I just mention it just a minute ago? Uh, Dunkirk. Dunkirk is superb. Dunkirk is superb. He doesn't, you know, there's 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 no mealy mouth stuff about that film. Not not at all. But in this one, you get just a little bit of it. And again, is it because he's ignorant of these events? Well, no, I don't think so. His research for Dunkirk was very good. His his research here on Oppenheimer seems to have been meticulous uh, on all sorts of matters. So why not on this critical point? Why wasn't he as equally meticulous here? Well, first of all, the idea of America as supervillain, it's currently popular. It's vogue. It's fashionable. You can get away with it. Anti-Americanism is all the rage these days. Consider this tweet from America-hating journalist, Nicole Hannah-Jones. She tweets under the name Ida Bay Wells, who was a founder of the NAACP. But this is what she says in her tweet. You're the one who poorly understands history. That's poorly written, by the way. They dropped the bomb when they knew surrender was coming because they'd spent all this money developing it and to prove it was worth it. Propaganda is not history, my friend. Now her tweet is propaganda and it is based in, I'm assuming this isn't just a deliberate twisting of history. I think she really just isn't very bright. I think she just really isn't that bright. Now, what is her motive? Well, Ms. Jones is the founder of the infamous 1619 Project. Do you know what the 1619 Project is? Oh, wow. It's, uh, it is all about the rewriting of American history and reinterpreting it through the lens of slavery. It is, it is to reinterpret America's history, to rewrite it in as dark a hues as possible. Now it is possible, you will hear me say this on this podcast with some regularity, usually when I'm talking about the media, it is possible to take facts, truth, and to assemble them in such a way as to tell a non-factual story. It'd be like we take your history, we take your history, and we just take all the bad bits and we push them all together and say, that's who you are. That's who you are. You're all these bad bits. But in between, there's much else to be said. There's context to be given to those things. The 1619 Project is about perverting American history and destroying it in the minds of the American people, again, for the purpose of power. America is in this telling of history, an international bad guy. And it suits her agenda because this is what she is all about. But she's not alone in this. Let's take a look at these headlines. From The Guardian, we have um, a headline here that says, Don't let the victors define morality. Hiroshima was always indefensible. Really? Was it? Then we have, this is from the week, the headline here is, um, the, the header is missing. The atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were war crimes, full stop. And then the new statesman, which is way on the left. Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the single greatest acts of terrorism in human history. And it goes on to say, yeah, yeah, they were. Let's read this eyewitness account. I hardly thought about what I saw. But just kept on walking. The stench of the dead bodies was already overpowering in the heat of the midsummer sun. It was a living hell. In every case, the eyeballs of the dead were either protruding from their sockets or hanging out completely. Blood had gushed from the mouth, ears, and nose. The tongue had swelled to the size of a golf ball and had pushed its way out of the mouth, gripped tightly by the teeth. The whole anatomy Seemed to have been destroyed. Now, this is the account of a Japanese soldier of what he saw in Hiroshima after the dropping of the first bomb. Now, if I were to push this big volume, this history of World War II, it's Gerhard Weinberg's A World at Arms, a global history of World War II. I actually met him. I attended one of his lectures, I push this over to you, and you just flip it open. You know nothing about World War II, and you flip it open, and you read that particular account, and that's all you know. You may say to yourself, there's nothing, absolutely nothing, that can justify that. There's nothing that can justify the dropping of the atomic bombs, but you would be wrong if you thought that. Ever heard of Pearl Harbor? Ever heard of the Bataan Death March? I actually met a guy who was on the D- Bataan Death March. He survived it. And uh, he told the story of how he saw a Japanese soldier take a bayonet. He, he took his foot and held a Filipina to the ground, and he took his rifle, the bayonet and his rifle, to cut out. She was a pregnant woman, to cut out her baby and then paraded the baby around on the end of his bayonet he talks about friends who were beheaded on the Bataan death march you know guys who were stumbling over from you know lack of water lack of food exhaustion just beheaded them right there on the spot uh, the korean comfort women ever heard of them how about the rape of nanking i don't have the book right here but i have it in electronic form iris changs the rape of nanking That is a disturbingly powerful book. Do you have have any idea how many people were killed in the rape of Nanking? Almost nobody in the West does. We know almost nothing of what the Japanese did there. 350,000 Chinese were slaughtered in a six-weeks orgy of violence in that city alone. In that city alone, most of them were non combatants. Most were civilians. The rest were were captured Chinese soldiers. They were used as bayonet practice. They were um, beheaded in competitions, competitions to see how many people they could behead in a certain measure of time. Women were raped on a massive scale. It's estimated about 80,000 Chinese women were raped just in Nanking alone. The horrors of Nanking just beggar the imagination. Or just read Laura Hillenbrand's Unbroken. Maybe you've seen the film. Film isn't particularly good. Um, Angelina Jolie's film I didn't think was, was very faithful to the book. But Unbroken is worth reading. Or better yet, read Alabama's own, E.B. Sledge's classic, With the Old Breed. A horrifying account of war in the Pacific. Atomic bombs? you damn right. The atomic bomb was the speediest way of ending this carnage. Now, as it turns out, I actually knew the man who provided the casualty estimates on the possible invasion of the Japanese Home Islands. His name was M.R.D. Foote, Michael Foote, Michael Richard Daniel Foote. You can look him up. Don't look up M.D.R. Foot. M.D.R. Foot as a parliamentarian, was a parliamentarian. Uh, M.R.D. Foot was a famous historian, and he was something of a mentor to me. Fascinating, fascinating guy. The only man, by the way, to be mentioned by his real name in a John Le Carré novel. Uh, he was very, very interesting man. Well. He was a member of the SAS, the Special Air Service, which was their commando unit during the war, and he was captured by the Nazis while on a behind-the-lines mission. He escaped three times, three times. His telling of it was marvelous. You maybe have seen him, and you just didn't know that you've seen him on the History Channel. On the third escape, he was attacked with pitchforks by French farmers from whom he was seeking help. One of them turned around with a pitchfork, caught him right in the neck, broke his neck. He was turned over, back over to the the Germans, and he languished in a POW camp until he was traded for a U-boat captain. Once recovered, he was deemed unfit for service and was assigned the formidable task of estimating American casualties were the United States to undertake a conventional landing on Japan, on the home islands. His estimate, 1.5 million casualties. And that's just U.S. casualties. That's not speaking of the Japanese casualties, which would have numbered undoubtedly uh, many times more. Now... This estimate, which some say is an exaggeration just to justify the use of the bombs, was based on the considerable evidence and experience the United States had acquired during the bloody island hopping campaign to retake the Pacific from Imperial Japan. In his new book, and again, I have an electronic form, I don't have a physical copy of it right here. But his new book, Road to Surrender by Evan Thomas. Evan Thomas is very good. I read his book called Ike on uh, on Eisenhower, which I thought was superb. And this book is, uh, I don't think this book is is quite as good. For some reason, he writes it in present tense, which is kind of an odd way to write history. But anyway, but the facts are, uh, are nonetheless uh, indisputable and are really, really helpful in understanding this issue. He points out that the lower estimates of casualties were those, I didn't know this, I just learned this from, from reading Thomas. He says those are lowball estimates, his word, uh, by George Marshall and um, Douglas MacArthur who wanted the army to win it. They wanted the invasion. And so they offered lower estimates um, to Truman. They, they were lowballing it so to speak. Um, But Foote's estimates were based on, you know, America's actual experience, what was happening in the Pacific. So ferociously had the Japanese defended such godforsaken rocks as Tarawa, Pelu, Kwajalein, and Iwo Jima inflicting massive casualties on the United States, often fighting to the last man. We had virtually no Japanese prisoners. I think the peak Of Japanese prisoners, we had uh, a little over 5,000 of them. Wholly different in Europe. We're speaking hundreds of thousands. But it's because the Japanese themselves often fought to the last man. And so after after Iwo Jima, and particularly after Okinawa, Okinawa saw 150,000 Okinawans, civilians, Killed in that battle, more than 100,000 Japanese soldiers killed. So right there, 250,000 people killed in taking Okinawa. Based on that, Foote and others came to the conclusion, if they will defend those islands with, with such fanatical desperation, then you can bet they're going to do it on the home islands. And also because the bombing of Japan had leveled city after city, and yet the Japanese still had not surrendered. U.S. intelligence knew the Japanese were, in addition to their regular forces, preparing old men, women, and children to meet any American invasion on the beaches with pitchforks, with with farming tools. Now, I went to Okinawa a few years ago I went to Hacksaw Ridge, um, made famous by Mel Gibson's film Hacksaw Ridge and certainly made famous before that by the men who fought and died on Hacksaw Ridge taking it. Now, to this day, there are areas where you can't walk because there are unexploded landmines that are there. Um, you have a vast underground um, system of, uh, of tunnels, caves, holes from which I was standing in in one of the caves from which the Japanese launched a bonsai attack against U.S. machine guns, meaning they were out of bullets. So they just put their bayonets on their guns, they lined up, and then they came charging out straight at the machine guns. This is the kind of fanaticism we're talking about. This was not happening, for the most part, at the end of World War II. It just wasn't happening. I, I knew a man who was in the Merchant Marine Corps, and um, he just told me a story this years ago. He was a teacher. He, uh, he said that um, near, you know, near the end of the war in Europe, the, the Germans surrendered on May 8, 1945. The, the end didn't come in the Pacific until August of 1945. So he said he's driving his truck through France. And he says, um, a platoon of German soldiers came out with their rifle butts in the air. They hold them like this, put the rifle butts in the air, which is a sign of surrender. And he said, I had no means of taking them prisoner. But he said, "They, they got into the back of my truck. Some of them sat in the cab with me. And then as we went along, another group came out. And I arrived at headquarters with German soldiers sitting all over my truck who were surrendering. This did not happen in the Pacific. It didn't happen at the aforementioned, you know, islands that I was speaking of. The United States simply did not encounter that kind of a defeated enemy who were ready to surrender in the case of the uh, of the Germans, they did not want to be taken prisoner by the Russians. They were seeking to to avoid that. And they knew they would get humane treatment from the Americans and from the British, and to the extent that they were there, uh, the French. But you didn't you didn't have Japanese coming out of this tunnel system in Okinawa surrendering. It didn't happen, and because of that, Michael Foot said you can expect the casualties based on what we saw in what will be much smaller conflicts as compared to Japan, the casualties will be much, much higher. Also at Okinawa, um, I saw the cliffs from which Japanese women, or rather Okinawan women, were throwing their babies as uh, uh, Japanese interpreters for the Americans were speaking to them and saying, don't do this, don't do this, we will not harm you. But you see, they were all told that America was, that, that Americans were going to rape them, that they're going to eat their children, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so you see these, you can find this on YouTube. You can see these these women taking their babies and throwing them off of the cliffs, onto the rocks below, and then the women themselves jumping. This was the kind of fanaticism that was being seen there. I've also interviewed other veterans of these battles. What they tell you is absolute horror. And I've taken the Railway of Death in Thailand, made famous by the film um, Bridge on the River Kwai. I've walked through the graveyards of the men who built that railway, their treatment, the, the horrific treatment that those men suffered. No other theater of American operation in World War II was comparable to the ferocity, to the mercilessness encountered in the Pacific. Uh, only the Eastern Front, in which the United States didn't fight, only the Eastern Front between Russia and Germany saw a similar level of brutality. And then you add to that, the experience of American POWs in Europe which generally received much better, vastly better treatment than those in the Pacific. The mortality rate of Americans in German POW camps was 4%. It was 27% in Japanese POW camps. Now, Michael Foote, MRD Foot. Uh, Equipped with this kind of information and much more, had rightly concluded any conventional attack on Japan would see millions of deaths. In his exceptional book, where is it? I got it right here. And oh, by the way, these shoes, seems odd to have shoes sitting up here, but I wanted to remember these were sent to me. These were sent to me by a listener to this podcast, a guy who likes this podcast. He's a subscriber. Uh, His name is John Candor, and he sent me these. And these are fabulous. I just wore these in, in Dallas uh, for some filming that we were doing there. And, uh, and I like them very much, John. Um, John, is, uh, John is a believer. John's a guy you should buy some shoes from. John Candor Shoes. Thank you for sending these to me. These are very kind of you. And Stephen Ambrose's excellent little book here. It's called Americans at War. This is what he says. It's a collection of essays. It's not just about the dropping of the bomb, but he has a chapter on the dropping of the bomb, and it is a superb chapter. But this is what he says. Serious questions about the decision to use the bomb have been asked for the past half century. Was it necessary to use atomic bombs to force a quick surrender, or were there alternatives? Was the bomb used as an act of revenge or of diplomacy? At the center of all criticisms of the decision is an assumption, namely that the Japanese military leaders were rational men who recognized that their cause was hopeless and were looking for a way to surrender with honor. Their only demand was the retention of the emperor. In fact, they were ready to fight to the last man. They were driven not by a view of what the objective situation was, but by their view of what their code as men required them to do. To surrender while still capable of fighting, one final battle was deemed dishonorable. They were already disgraced. They had led their country into a war in which they could not possibly win and carried it out with brutal disregard for the dictates of decency or the laws of war. And they had fought it stupidly, but at least they could go down fighting bravely. Therefore, surrender was not a problem of calculations of men and resources, but of honor and dishonor. Now that is a mentality that is hard for us as Americans to understand, but those who are fighting the Japanese absolutely understood this. They knew it was true. They knew that they were also reading the uh, the communications due to something called magic. Uh, the United States, the Japanese were so arrogant, they didn't change their codes throughout the war. We were reading so much of their, their um, uh, diplomatic communique, and we knew that they had no plans of Surrender. Japanese scholar, this guy right here. I bought this book about 30 years ago. It's, a, it's an interesting little book. It's called The Pacific War by Saburo Ayanaga. Saburo Ayanaga was a, uh, a, a Japanese communist a scholar who lived in Japan during the war. And he says in, uh, in his account of the war that, and by the way, he's not of the view that the United States should have dropped the atomic bombs, but he does say that the Japanese were prepared to fight to the last man. They were They were prepared to do it, or woman. They were prepared to fight on. So anyone who argues that America should have invaded versus dropping the bombs, is essentially arguing that hundreds of thousands, possibly millions, of American boys should have died to save Japanese lives. That's to me is just mind-blowing arrogance. They should die because your conscience demands that they should die. Secretary of War Henry L. Stimson describes in his diary meeting with American soldiers who had just returned from Europe. they just come back from Europe. This is after May 8. This is after the defeat of Japan. These soldiers were being prepared to be shipped to the Pacific for an invasion of Japan. And what he says is really quite moving. He says, here they are. They're individuals who have already won one war, And now they're being told that they have to fight another one. He said that he'd never seen such weariness of soul as he saw that day in the eyes of these men, that it was more than just physical fatigue. Most of them, he also knew, would die if that invasion actually took place. He says that it was after that meeting that he knew America had to drop the bomb. Have you seen the film Machine Gun Preacher? Should watch it uh, with Gerard Butler, Michelle. I'm not sure how you say her last name, Montague, Monahan, something like that. But it's a uh, it's an interesting film. It is based on a on a book by the by the same name. Uh, we shared the same editor at Harper Collins. Um, but it's about a guy who doing work in uh, I believe the Sudan. Um, he, he, he became a Christian and he became very convicted that he should try to help um, orphans in Africa. And so he builds an orphanage there, but he becomes very aware that these children are often being um, maybe trafficked is the right word. I, in fact, it would be the right word, at least for the girls, but that um, Islamic militants are um, kidnapping these children and using them as soldiers in their own militias. And uh, so what he does is he begins to arm um, his own people to kill these militants to save these children. Now, why I mention the story is because if you watch Machine Gun Preacher, make sure you watch it through the credits because it's showing the actual guy, the actual Machine Gun Preacher who was played by Gerard Butler, and um, it shows him playing with the kids and various things, and then at the very end, he appears on the screen. And as you've you've just sat and you've watched this film, and it's raising a lot of theological questions. If you're a Christian, you're thinking, "Well, gosh, I don't know. Is it right that he that he killed those people? Was that the right thing to do? I I don't know. You know, maybe maybe it was the right thing. I'm not sure if what he did was the right thing in order to save." Those children, But then he appears on the screen, and this is genius, at the end of this film. He says, if it was your son or daughter who had been kidnapped and taken into slavery, would you care how I got them back? And it hits you like a ton of bricks because your answer is, no! <laughs> no, I don't care. I don't care. The questions are easier, the moral questions, when they are removed from you so that you're not having to face those issues. These questions are much easier when they don't actually affect your world. You can say, yeah, sure, shouldn't have dropped those bombs because it isn't you who's going to be sent to the Pacific. It isn't, it isn't your family members who are imprisoned and being tortured by the enemy. It isn't your family member who was murdered at Pearl Harbor or who was raped at Nanking or who was beheaded at Nanking or who was uh, a bayoneted um, on the Bataan Death March. You're not affected by any of that. So it's easy for you to sit on your high horse and say, well, f- hold your lapels and say, well, the bombs, they just shouldn't have been dropped. Machine Gun Breacher, I think, kind of brings that home. And knowing that that's what's going on in the minds of audiences, I felt that film hit very hard in saying, but if it was you, and thus I ask you the question, if it was your son or your husband who is about to be shipped to the Pacific and probably die, would you want those bombs dropped? You better believe you would. And I have to add this, one of the the silly things uh, uh, that seems to be lost in this debate is, Truman's job was to save American lives. We were at war, we were at war. It was his job to save American lives, not to save Japanese lives. It's not to say that there should have been wanton destruction of Japanese cities or careless, you know, throwing away of Japanese lives. But the fact is that the atomic bombs were dropped to end the war. And they did. We know this. Also forgotten is the March 9, 10 firebombings of incendiary bombs were dropped on Tokyo. In one night, more people died. I mean, Japanese houses just went up like cellophane. They just, they weren't, they weren't built um, as modern houses or even like those of Europe. And uh, it is estimated that more people died on that night than died in the dropping of the atomic bombs. But the atomic bombs had a, had a, you know, wow factor that those other bombs just simply did not. Now with almost 80 years in the rear view mirror, since the bombs were dropped, it is easy to moralize over whether or not it should have happened. Guys like Christopher Nolan and, uh, and this woman here, um, Miss, uh, Miss Nicole Hannah-Jones, she can, she can moralize over this and act as though she is a superior, uh, more noble, more humane, more high-minded individual than were those who fought that war. She isn't. She's just more arrogant. And ignorance gives way to arrogance, The point is that Oppenheimer, which is very good at many levels, I know that it seems I've trashed it throughout this whole podcast. I actually think it's a a rather good film. In fact, I'm convinced that Robert Downey Jr. will win an Oscar. I think he'll win an Academy Award for for his role in this film. He was was absolutely superb. But while the film is good at many points, it does American servicemen who fought in the Pacific and America in general, a great disservice in characterizing them as bloodthirsty. American magnanimity was proved beyond the shadow of a doubt in the post-war settlement with Japan. Commenting upon the Japanese surrender ceremony, Toshikazu Kase, Japan's foreign minister and signer of that document, which took place aboard the USS Missouri with... um, you know, a couple of some survivors of the Bata- Bataan Death March who were there, and with General MacArthur presiding. This is what he wrote immediately following the surrender ceremony. And he wrote this to the emperor. It was a piece of rare good fortune that a man of such caliber, he's referring to MacArthur, that a man of such caliber of character should have been designated as the supreme commander to shape the destiny of Japan. In the dark hour of our despair and distress, a bright light is ushered in, in the very person of General MacArthur. The big day on the Missouri will stand out as one of the brightest dates in history, with General MacArthur as a shining obelisk in the desert of human endeavor that marks a timeless march onward towards an enduring peace. And then he offered this gem, "'After all, we were not beaten on the battlefield by dint of superior arms alone.'" We were defeated in a spiritual contest by virtue of a nobler idea. The real issue was moral beyond all powers of algebra to compute. Very powerful. Kase went on to wonder whether, quote, it would have been possible for us, that is Japan, to embrace the vanquished with a similar magnanimity. Clearly, it would have been very different. So he's saying there, if we had won the war, promise you, that's not not what the settlement would have been. It would have looked more like what happened with the rape of Nanking. We wouldn't wouldn't be looking at the rebuilding of uh, 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 American territories or the United States itself. You know who wrote the Japanese Constitution, which is still in use today? Douglas MacArthur and his staff. One of the most democratic constitutions In the world, America's history contains both good and evil. But on the whole, it has been a good history a history of a people who fled oppression, created a free nation, fought to extend those freedoms to people both domestic and foreign, and who, because of the Christian heritage upon which their nation was built, managed to overcome national sins like institutional slavery and move forward. No other nation on earth has been able to do it. Indeed, the past haunts countries like Germany, Russia, China, Japan, and others, and it's because they lack that similar Christian foundation. But as that Christian ethos seeps out of our culture, out of American society like a slow leak in a tire, Our history, which might serve to inspire and guide us, is now being used to enslave us. We can't allow it. Now, the irony is the very people who would tell us our history is really just a history of evil are the same ones who are, by degrees, turning America into the global villain they contend we have always been. We aren't even at war with Russia, not officially, We're just using Ukraine as a a proxy, but we're sending cluster bombs to Ukraine. We are pushing depopulation around the world through abortion and adolescent, irreversible adolescent sex change surgeries. This administration has turned a blind eye to human trafficking. We are annihilating our constitution and with it, the rule of law it's time that you stand up it's time that you find your voice it's time that you believed in a god with a capital g ladies and gentlemen i say it all the time on this podcast i think what we're seeing is a case of the tail wagging the dog i think the american people have the ability to change the culture to change what is happening in this country and indeed uh have have an enormous impact on events taking place around the world but it is going to require men and women of courage to stand up and say we won't let this happen let your voice be heard and by the way enjoy Oppenheimer but do bear these historical facts in mind when you do